Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Bowling Green, Kentucky. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Before we get into all the details of today's episode, I want to go over some statistics, and it's going to be stat-heavy, but hang on. According to NCMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, as of December 2015, there had been 302 infant abductions. 18 of those were fetal abduction cases going all the way back to 1983. That means that 6% of abductions were from the womb. Only four of those abductions happened in the 20-year period between 1983 and 2003, but there was a terrifying increase in the 12 years following. Between 2003 and 2015 alone, there were 14, and one of those cases is what we're going to be covering today. When it comes to who would do something like this, Nick Mick says that the typical newborn infant offender is generally a female of childbearing age and often indicates that she lost a baby or is incapable of having one. They're often married or living with their partner, and fetal abductors tend to live in the community where the abduction takes place. The creepiest statistic of all is that they frequently visit nursery and maternity units at more than one healthcare facility prior to the abduction. Moving along with the WHO, Nick Mick states that the offender usually plans the abduction but doesn't necessarily target a specific infant. Instead, they tend to seize on an opportunity that presents itself. The race and skin color of the offender almost always matches the infant's or the offender's significant other, and that's likely because the offender's significant other rarely plays any part in it. They buy into the belief that their significant other truly gave birth or adopted this magically appearing child. While not every fetal abduction is going to fall into any or all of those categories, a senior analyst for Nick Mick told the Bowling Green Daily News that all fetal abductions are eerily similar, that there's no handbook for how they go about committing their crimes, but she says that they all put their own personal twist on things. They're all good at the con. That is how they get through their lives, through lying, manipulation, and deceit. The fetal abduction in today's episode is eerily similar to all the others, but the twist the offender put on this abduction is something that no one could have been prepared for. Jamie Michelle Stice always had a smile on her face and could find the good in every situation. She was a trusting soul and didn't see evil in the world. Jamie grew up in Warren County, Kentucky, and when she was just two years old, her parents divorced. Her mother, Jeannie, raised Jamie and her older brother, Eric, as a single mother until she remarried a man named Mike. Jamie and her mother were as close as they could be, her mother telling Investigation Discovery, she loved me to death and I loved her to death. In 2008, just after 18-year-old Jamie graduated from high school, she started dating a 20-year-old guy named James. James had previously been married and had a son of his own, but Jamie's friend Kelly told Investigation Discovery that as soon as Jamie set eyes on James, she fell in love. Two years later, in the summer of 2010, Jamie and James were still together and living with Jamie's mom in Bowling Green. Jamie wasn't working at the time, but James was because his priority was providing for his son. Little did he know, he was about to have another. 
That summer, Jamie found out she was pregnant. She was due May 24, 2011, and was over the moon about becoming a mother. She'd worked as a babysitter in the past and absolutely loved children. Even though Jamie was close to her mother, she was nervous to tell her about the news. As someone who is a young mother herself, I can attest that it is terrifying. Jeannie told Investigation Discovery that she was scared to death after hearing that her 20-year-old daughter was pregnant, but that she decided to face it. She accepted the news and Jamie was relieved. Jeannie told Jamie and James that they were more than welcome to keep living with her as long as they needed. The next person Jamie was worried about telling was her older brother, Eric. Big brothers are always our protectors, and he was not excited. He told Investigation Discovery that all he could think was that her life was ruined. He had the same concerns that most do, worrying that she wasn't financially prepared, and he worried that it would get in the way of her succeeding. She was still so young and had so much going for her. Eric's concerns weren't a judgment. They were coming from experience. He and his siblings had grown up in a single-parent household, and they knew what it was like to be poor, to not have enough money to pay the bills, to always be worried about money, and he didn't want that life for his sister. While Jamie's boyfriend James was working, that income was still going to have to be split between his son and the new baby. Jamie didn't want her child to grow up the way that she did, so she started thinking about her own career choices. She naturally settled on social work, her friend Kelly telling Investigation Discovery that Jamie wanted to help children because she'd seen all kinds of children that she wished she could have helped growing up. As big as Jamie's dreams were and how hard she was willing to work for them, she never got the chance. Not long after she announced her pregnancy and carved out her plans, James lost his job. Money had already been tight, and without James's income, the couple was scrambling to pay the bills. Tuition was out of the question. James didn't waste any time trying to look for another job, and while he was doing that, Jamie found out the sex of their baby. It was a boy, and they immediately started throwing around names. They settled on the perfect one, Isaiah, because it meant God is salvation. Jamie, like every other expecting mom, posted all over social media about her pregnancy. Baby Isaiah was on the way and already the center of her universe. Her profile picture was of her cute little baby bump, and according to her friend Kelly, who did an interview with Investigation Discovery, Jamie had one of those pregnancy apps that would give her weekly updates on how big little Isaiah was, like the size of a walnut, then a banana, and then a cantaloupe. It would also tell her where he was in his development, like your baby now has fingernails or your baby can now suck its thumb. Jamie never missed an opportunity to share her weekly update with her friends on Facebook, and it was clear to everyone that she could not wait to meet her sweet boy and share him with the world. Come March of 2011, Jamie was seven months pregnant, and for anyone who has been seven months pregnant, you know that that means that your back is crying, your ankles are screaming, and your bladder doesn't even know what day it is. Jamie's friend Kelly told Investigation Discovery that at that point, because of everything that comes with housing a human in your body for that long, Jamie wasn't able to do all the things they used to and was bored out of her mind. 
It got to the point where she felt really isolated, and she spent a lot of her time sitting around the house and singing You Are My Sunshine to her belly. Feeling super pregnant and really isolated is hard enough, but to make matters worse, her and James's relationship started going downhill. According to Investigation Discovery, he was on his phone a lot and going out with friends and stuff like that, the kind of things that Jamie couldn't do. She felt like he wasn't there for her when she needed his help and support, and when he was there for her, they would wind up arguing about money. They still needed a lot of stuff for Isaiah, who was coming, ready or not, in two months, and they didn't know how they were going to get it. Jamie's friend told Kelly that Jamie started to worry that she was going to have to raise the baby alone and started to turn to social media for comfort. In mid to late March of 2011, Jamie got a notification. It was a Facebook message from a woman she had never met named Kathy Coy. Kathy was a 33-year-old mother of two teenagers and lived about 25 miles away from Bowling Green in Morgantown. Kathy told Jamie that she was around seven months pregnant and that she'd heard Jamie was too, so that's why she'd reached out, adding the cliche tagline, us mom should stick together. Jamie asked Kathy if they knew each other, and Kathy said that she was the cousin of one of Jamie's friends, Becca. Initially, Jamie was a little weirded out about the random message, but when she fact-checked the random stranger, she looked at their mutual friends and saw that Becca was, in fact, one of them. It lowered the red flag rising, and Jamie took Kathy at her word and started confiding in her. Jamie's friend told Investigation Discovery that Jamie was just really excited to have someone to talk to about everything. Over the next few days, Jamie and Kathy got to know each other pretty well through their messages. They talked about their pregnancies and relationships, and Kathy told Jamie that she had been married twice. First to a man named George, and now to a man named Shannon, whose baby she said she was currently pregnant with. Though that second part is somewhat bullshit, because according to the Park City Daily News, she and Shannon were technically divorced, but giving their relationship another shot. Buttering that detail up doesn't feel like the biggest lie in the world. It was what she failed to mention altogether that likely would have stopped their friendship before it started. According to the Bowling Green Daily News, Kathy was charged with assault after allegedly stabbing her first husband in the back, like actually stabbing him. And two years after that, Investigation Discovery reports that Kathy was charged with disorderly conduct after allegedly standing on her porch and screaming at her boyfriend. The charges in both of those cases were eventually dismissed, but going down the list of details that Kathy left out of their conversations was the fact that while Kathy told Jamie that she had two teenagers, which was true, she didn't have custody of either of them. Her sister Vicky did. Not knowing what she didn't know, Jamie confided in Kathy about her relationship troubles with James and about how they were struggling financially. She also told her how isolated she had been feeling recently, and Kathy seemed to understand on a personal level, saying that Shannon worked out of town a lot, leaving her a lot of time to feel lonely. While the two of them were getting to know one another, Jamie's family took another financial blow. Her mother and her stepfather both lost their jobs. To give a little insight here, because a lot of people have lost their jobs in this episode, the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that the unemployment rate was pretty high at the time, sitting at around 9% compared to the 3% we're at now. 
With Jamie not working and both of her parents without a job, the stress level of welcoming a new baby was at an all-time high. In what felt like a blessing, though, Kathy told Jamie that she just so happened to work with an organization that helped new mothers in need, like getting enough clothes and supplies for babies. She told Jamie that she could help her get some of the things she still needed, and Jamie could not have been more grateful for the help. Kathy seemed to talk the talk and walk the walk. Within a couple of days, she was already offering to make the drive to Bowling Green to meet Jamie and her mother and drop off some stuff for baby Isaiah. Jeannie told Investigation Discovery that her first impression of Kathy was that she was a very nice person. While Kathy and Jamie were finally meeting in person for the first time, they got on the topic of baby showers. Jamie said that she wasn't going to be able to have one due to finances, but Kathy told her that she was going to make it happen, that she planned the entire thing and all about how she loved parties and helping people. Jamie accepted Kathy's offer and they scheduled the shower for April 16th. Over the next few weeks, Kathy spent more and more time with Jamie at her mom's house. She even started giving rides to Jeannie, helping her run errands and things like that. Jeannie told Investigation Discovery that it got to the point where Kathy was over there every day. She'd regularly come with baby gifts in hand and also brought over cash to help pay with rent and utility bills. Jamie and her mother genuinely felt like Kathy was a godsend. The morning of April 13th, 2011 started with no indication that it would be any different from any other day. Kathy and Jamie had made plans to go baby shopping because Kathy said that she had a friend whose baby store was closing and she wanted to take Jamie there to get the rest of the stuff she needed. Before they headed out to go shopping, Kathy said that she'd give Jamie's mom a ride to the Social Security office and she dropped Jeannie off and said that she'd pick her up whenever she was done. But Kathy never did. Instead, she sent Jeannie a text saying that she was in labor and was at the hospital, so she'd have to get a ride from someone else. According to the Park City Daily News, Jeannie called her brother and caught a ride from him. But when Jeannie got home, Jamie wasn't there. She hadn't even left a note, which was something that she always did. She tried calling Jamie to figure out where she was, but there was no answer. Jeannie reached back out to Kathy to see if maybe she knew where Jamie was, but Kathy said that she had no idea. She said that she dropped Jamie off back at the house after their shopping trip. Panicked, one by one, Jeannie called all of Jamie's friends and even James, the father of baby Isaiah, but not any single one of them had seen or heard from her. Six hours went by before Kathy reached back out to Jeannie, but when she did, it wasn't to tell her that she'd heard from Jamie. It was to give her the news that she had just given birth to a baby boy. Jeannie said her obligatory congratulations, but that wasn't her focus at all. She asked Kathy again if she had heard from Jamie yet, and again, Kathy said no. But while Kathy had told Jeannie that she was in the hospital and after six hours had given birth to a baby boy, she was simultaneously not at the hospital and instead pulling up into her friend Shelly's driveway and honking the horn incessantly trying to get her attention. It worked and Shelly came outside, but when she walked out to Kathy's car, there was nothing that could have prepared her for what she saw. Kathy had zero pants on, was holding a newborn baby boy, and was sitting on a placenta. The baby was attached to an umbilical cord and for whatever reason had grass on him. Kathy told Shelly that she had just given birth and instead of asking for an immediate ride to a hospital, 
asked Shelly to take a picture of her and the baby so that she could send it to her husband, Shannon. Shelly, in all of her glorious pettiness, reminded Kathy that she wasn't actually married to Shannon, but sent the picture anyway. Once the photo op was finished, she called an ambulance and Kathy Baby and Placenta all made their way to the hospital. Naturally, as soon as Kathy got there, doctors gave her an exam. The results, however, made absolutely no sense. There was no blood or anything that would have indicated that she had recently given birth, which is wild because proving that you gave birth in the last couple of hours is probably the easiest thing you could ever do. And trying to prove that you did give birth when you didn't is literally impossible. With no sign of a baby having made their way out of Kathy, the doctors at the hospital turned their attention to the placenta that was still attached. That had to have come from someone. While they were looking at the placenta, they quickly realized that there was a whole lot more still attached. A uterus and ovaries. An entire female reproductive system was still attached to this little baby boy. With that, the hospital staff notified the Bowling Green Police Department, who immediately got the Kentucky State Police involved. According to the Bowling Green Daily News, once officers arrived at the hospital, a doctor told them the obvious, that there was no way Kathy could have given birth to that baby, and the fact that the uterus and ovaries were still attached meant that the actual woman who had given birth to him was most likely dead. The first thing officers did was try and get Kathy's side of the story. It was obviously going to be full of crap, but they needed to start keeping track of her staircase of bullshit. They asked her where she got the baby, and of course, she told them that it was hers. Officers let her in on the fact that they didn't believe her and asked her again, saying that they really needed to find the mother. With the inkling that they were onto her, the Bowling Green News reports that Kathy changed her story. She told officers that she'd bought the baby from a woman named Ashley for the low, low price of $550. Officers knew that wasn't true because Ashley, the imaginary head of the baby buying business, couldn't have survived long enough to sell it. So with that, they transported Kathy to the Kentucky State Police Station for questioning. At some point during Kathy's interrogation, she agreed to take investigators to the place that she claimed she'd purchased the baby boy from. The plan was to lead them to Ashley, but as a shock to no one, there was no Ashley. While all of that was going on, there was a whole other set of officers searching Kathy's home. They found two knives, including a drywall knife, duct tape, and a stun gun. They also looked through Kathy's Facebook account to try and see who she knew that might have been pregnant, and they found two who were 30 weeks along or more. One of them was Jamie Stice. With the names of the two pregnant women, Investigation Discovery reports that officers set out on a mission to find them. They found the first woman alive and well, but when they got to Jamie's house, her mother answered and said that she had been missing for around 14 hours at that point. 
Jeannie told them that she was just getting ready to call them. She told officers that the last time she'd seen Jamie was when she left to go to the Social Security office earlier that morning. Jeannie explained that Jamie's pregnant friend, Kathy, had been the one to give her a ride. As far as she knew, after getting dropped off, Kathy took Jamie shopping to buy baby items, but Kathy never came back to pick her up. The pieces of a terrifying puzzle were starting to come together, and with the knowledge that Jamie knew Kathy and was missing, detectives went back to the interrogation room. They asked Kathy who Jamie was, and she said that she didn't know Jamie at all. Kathy was a lying little shit. Investigators told her that they knew for a fact she knew Jamie, but Kathy was sticking to the Ashley story, but this time, Ashley was a murderer. She said that it was Ashley who killed Jamie and took her baby. The Ashley that was invisible and the Jamie that Kathy was friends with on Facebook but denied knowing at all. Realizing that no one would believe any of that, Kathy finally came clean and admitted that there was no Ashley. She started telling them the horrifying truth that she had killed Jamie and in the process had performed a C-section and stolen baby Isaiah from her body. Kathy told investigators that she had been pregnant with Shannon's baby, but that she'd had a miscarriage. Instead of telling anyone that she lost the baby, she pretended that she was still pregnant and stole an ultrasound picture, which she posted online, and bought baby items like nothing had happened. Eventually, Kathy decided that she needed to find a baby because her lie was a big one. If she didn't somehow find a baby by the end of those nine months, everyone was gonna know she had been lying. It was then that Kathy started looking online for women who were heavily pregnant and reached out to them. That is how she met Jamie. It's not clear whether Kathy was actually Becca's cousin or how they became Facebook friends, but regardless of whether they had a real friend in common or whether that was just a part of her ploy, Kathy spent about three weeks befriending Jamie. During that time, Kathy told her 13-year-old daughter that she had had a miscarriage and then asked her daughter if she would help her kidnap a baby. When her daughter said no, like any normal person would, Kathy played it off like it was a joke, but it wasn't because after her daughter turned her down, she asked her son if he would help her murder someone, and just like his sister, he told his mom no too. The mystery of why Kathy didn't have custody of her kids is less of a mystery at this point. With no accomplices available, Kathy went out and purchased a stun gun and looked up how to perform a C-section. Literally everything is listed online, like whether or not you do a vertical or transverse incision, how long the incision needs to be, which organs to push aside before you cut into the uterus, and how to take the baby out. The internet is a terrifying place. On the day of the murder, Kathy packed her stun gun and two knives, took Jeannie to the Social Security office, then went back to Jamie's house as planned. The Bowling Green News reports that Kathy went inside the house and used the stun gun to incapacitate Jamie. Knowing Jamie wouldn't be incapacitated for long, Kathy tied Jamie's wrists and took her body out to the car. She then drove 20 minutes away to an isolated, wooded area near an abandoned house. It was there that Kathy cut Jamie's wrists and her neck and started the process of performing her own C-section. She was aware that she'd have to work quickly because she knew if Jamie died, the umbilical cord wouldn't carry any more oxygen to baby Isaiah, and Isaiah was what she was after. 
Kathy used a drywall knife to cut Jamie's abdomen open and removed not only baby Isaiah, but also Jamie's reproductive organs, her uterus, ovaries, fallopian tubes, and placenta. After that, like it was nothing, Kathy drove to her friend's house and tried to pass the baby off as her own. Having admitted to everything she had done, Kathy led officers to where she'd left Jamie's body. On the way there, Kathy warned them that what they were about to see was gruesome, and she was right. In the early morning hours of April 14th, officers found Jamie's body. It was exactly where Kathy said she would be, near an abandoned house in an isolated wooded area near US 68 Kentucky 80. Because of how isolated it was, officers said that they may have never found Jamie's body if Kathy hadn't taken them there. According to the Bowling Green News, when Jamie was found, her wrists had been tied, both her wrists and her throat had been cut, and she had also been disemboweled. Her cause of death was listed as multiple homicidal sharp force injuries. After finding Jamie, officers had to go back to her mother's house to deliver the kind of heart-stopping news that changes your life and soul forever. That her daughter wasn't just missing, that she had been brutally murdered by someone masking as a blessing in disguise for the sole purpose of taking her baby. Jeannie told Investigation Discovery that when investigators told her, she just broke down. The only light at the end of any of this was that her grandson, the baby that Jamie had wanted to hold and sing to more than anything in this world, was okay. Isaiah's father James told WBKO that doctors estimated that the baby would be in the hospital for at least a few weeks, but that he was healthy. James told the station that he was grateful for the miracle, especially under the circumstances. He told WTVF that he'd met Kathy when she was trying to help out with baby items and described her as evil and psychotic. James said that he loved Jamie and that she was beautiful and happy-go-lucky with a great personality, adding that the saddest part of the entire situation was that Jamie would never be able to hold Isaiah or touch him or even see him. On April 16th, Jamie's friends and family honored her by holding her previously scheduled baby shower. She had been counting down the days for it, and they were going to make sure that she still got it. The Bowling Green News reports that the event information was shared on Facebook, and tons of people sent presents and donations for Isaiah to do whatever they could to make this situation even a little less horrible. Kentucky State Police continued to investigate the murder of Jamie Stice and through DNA testing officially confirmed what everyone had known all along, that the baby Kathy had brought to the hospital was in fact Isaiah. They also found out that Kathy had a history of faking pregnancies and stalking pregnant women. One detective said in court, I think she was definitely obsessed with being pregnant and the thought of having a baby. Kathy's neighbor Darla told the Associated Press that Kathy had kids and led everyone to believe that she was going to have another, adding that Shannon absolutely believed that Kathy was pregnant. Darla went on to talk about an incident that happened after she found out that she was going to be a grandmother. When she told Kathy the news, Kathy asked Darla if her daughter wanted to keep the baby. 
Darla brushed that off as a joke, but she couldn't understand why if Kathy was already telling everybody that she was so far along, why she was offering to take someone else's baby. Hindsight is terrifying. Throughout their investigation, Kentucky State Police were unable to prove whether Kathy had or had not been pregnant or whether or not she'd had a miscarriage. They also never figured out what her motive was, why Kathy pretended to be pregnant in the first place, murder a woman, and abduct her baby. Dr. Ann Burgess told Investigation Discovery that she believes Kathy was trying to make Shannon get back together with her, that Kathy saw a baby as the strongest way to be able to pull him back. Kathy was manipulative and preyed on Jamie, a young mother in need of support, both physically and emotionally. Dr. Burgess said she hit all the right buttons with this family. Kathy Coy was ultimately charged with murder and kidnapping of a minor. That meant if she was found guilty, she could face the death penalty, which was something that Jamie's family really wanted. At Kathy's preliminary hearing, the Park City Daily News reported that her defense objected to the entire proceedings, saying that Kathy was insane and unable to assist in her own defense. In the end, the judge found that there was enough probable cause for the case to go to the grand jury. He later told Investigation Discovery that Jamie's case was the most dramatic and chilling crime he had seen in his 30-year career. On June 8th, the grand jury handed down a five-count indictment. One count of murder, two counts of kidnapping, one for Jamie and another for Isaiah, tampering with evidence and resisting arrest. Kathy pleaded not guilty, and the prosecution decided that they would, in fact, be seeking the death penalty if the case went to trial, but it never did. On February 17th of 2012, Kathy changed her plea to guilty but mentally ill. In exchange for her plea, the death penalty was taken off the table. The Park City Daily News reported that Jamie's mother said that a life sentence was better than nothing. On March 1st, Kathy was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Baby Isaiah was eventually released from the hospital and went on to live with his father, James. Though he lives with James, the Associated Press reports that Isaiah spends every other weekend with Jeannie and the rest of Jamie's family. Jeannie has a wall of photos of Jamie and talks to Isaiah about his mother often. She makes sure to always sing the song that his mother planned to sing to him, You Are My Sunshine. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Jamie's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To listen ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 